realize that each week, uh, when you have this number of people, it is inevitable, uh, as much as I would wish otherwise, there are some people this, here this morning, and it might be you, or it might be someone sitting beside you that has not yet put their faith and trust in Jesus. And so I always want us to see, before we just launch into the text, I want us to see what is the context. And so if you're in one of those two categories, I want to go ahead and warn you what I'm about to say may be a little bit confusing. And if it's not confusing, it might be hard to digest. It might be hard to accept. You may say, I don't really know that I like some of those things uh, that you're alluding to. Uh, Well, I would invite you to study those out, and you'll see if you listen to some past messages uh, a few weeks back that there's some things on this that I do not even like, but I do believe them. We're going to look at Romans 10 in a moment, but before we do, we're going to read the end of Romans 9 again to get a running start. And what's happening here in Romans 9, so I'm going to kind of get us in context. What's happening in Romans 9 is the Word of God, listen, God's Word is under attack. Paul realizes this. The Apostle Paul, one of Jesus' followers, that his Holy Spirit specifically showed truth to and had him write it down. Paul is writing to a church, a group of house churches in the city of Rome, 2,000 years ago. And so what he's going to be referring to, I can't go over chapters 1 through 8 again, but Paul knows all these wonderful things about how though we're sinners, Jesus died on the cross for us. If we'll put our faith in him, we receive eternal life. And it really is eternal life, no matter what you do, following, receiving eternal life, no matter what sin or how much sin, you cannot lose it if you really have it. Now, I'm not saying that everybody who raises their hand, oh yes, I'm on my way to heaven, I'm, I'm ready, preacher. Not everybody that raises their hand really is ready, but those who've ever received eternal life can't lose it, and that's wonderful. But here's the attack on the Word of God. Paul anticipates people's question. It goes somewhere like this, all right, Paul. If our security is really secure, then what about all these promises God made to the Jews? Because they don't seem to be occurring. They don't seem to be happening. And I'm not going to do the long extended uh, introduction I've been doing, but I'm going to skip highlights of chapter 9, and you can go back and read this on your own. Here's what Paul says. The promises of God concerning the nation of Israel are true. Here's why. Not every person, you say, who are the Jews? There's this man named Abraham, and God said, I'm going to bless you. What do I have to do? Nothing. You just believe. I'm going to bless you and your descendants, and I have special plans for them. Well, things progress, but it doesn't look like God's word is coming true. And so Paul says, absolutely it is. Everything's right on schedule. Here's the answer. Not every descendant of Abraham is included in the promises. Not even every Israelite is included in the promises. And here's where it gets tricky. To defend his point that not all are included in those promises, Paul causes us to look at two twin boys, Esau and Jacob, real event, read the Old Testament, two twin boys, and here's what Paul points out, before they're born, before they've done good or bad, neither one has happened. Literally, you say, I don't like what you're about to say. Before they've done good or bad, God has already said the older is going to serve the the younger. And he already says, Jacob I love and Esau I hate. And I can tell you the ramifications of that. Today, Jacob's in heaven, Esau is not. And so we digest that. And that is what Romans 9, that's not what Jeff says, it's what Romans 9 teaches. And that's what the Old Testament put on display. And so then Paul says, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking there's injustice with God and we start getting mad with God and God can't do that. Here's God's answer. I can have, and again, this is all out of the Old Testament. Paul writes it down. He says, hey, this is true. God says, I can have mercy on whom I want to have mercy. And we've got to say, here's the baseline. Here's the baseline. If you miss the baseline, you're going to miss everything. The baseline is we've all sinned and offended a holy God. We deserve to be in hell right now. We all deserve to be in hell right now. And if God saves anybody, that's by mercy and grace because he didn't have to do it. That's why it's called grace. It's a grace gift. He doesn't have to do it. It's mercy. We're not getting what we deserve. But if he doesn't do that for everybody, that is God's prerogative. And then he kicks it up. 
Then even says, God raised up this man, Pharaoh, when Pharaoh was emblematic of many other people. God actually raised him up to a high position, a powerful position, so God could show his greater power in defeating Pharaoh in Egypt and bringing out the nation of Israel. And so people start thinking, well, then that's really not fair. God can have mercy on whom he wants, and then he can harden who he wants. He can raise him up so he can show his power and make his name famous. Yes, God can do that, and he does do that. And then to drive the point home, Paul, at the end of chapter 9, says, picture God as a potter, and there's a clay, and the potter can do what he wants with the clay, and the clay represents mankind. And he says, out of the same lump, so it's not like, well, they're good and those are bad. No, we're all bad. And so God can, out of the same lump, make vessels of honor for honorable use, and he can, with the other part of the lump, make vessels of dishonor. Why would God do that? And Paul says, here's the truth. God wants to show that he hates sin, and so he has vessels that will receive wrath and show that I hate sin. And then he wants to show his power in some lives. And yet God also says, I want some to see my glory. I want them to see the fullness of my glory, and they're going to be vessels of mercy. And we read all of that, and again, I'm telling you, I don't like all of that. But I just have to preach the Bible. I don't have a choice. I will stand before God. I'm not going to stand before you. I'd rather you get mad at me than God to be mad at me on that day. And so, again, study it out. And then he really finishes chapter 9 by saying, the Gentiles, God all along knew that the Gentiles would be brought in. They didn't know it was called the church in the Old Testament. We call it church today. And then God, toward the end of chapter 9, says, and the Jews, he's known all along that they were going to reject his son and only a small amount of them would be saved. And so with that in mind, we're about to start reading in a moment, but here's a thought. Here's the last of the introduction before we read today's text. It's important. This is important for those of you who've been here. Romans 10, which we're starting today, is the perfect balance to Romans 9. So those of you who dared the brave chapter 9, Or those of you who just kind of heard an overview of chapter 9, like, I don't know what, am I in the right place today? You're in the right place. You're in the right place. But what I want you to see is Romans 10 is the perfect balance to Romans 9. You You may say, Jeff, I was here. You sounded all in. You admitted you didn't like everything, but you really believed and you were very convincing. Absolutely, I believe everything in chapter 9. I equally believe everything we're going to say in chapter 10, and it balances it out. Why? Because some people wrongly view what I just said about God's sovereignty, His sovereignty in salvation. Some people wrongly view God's free prerogative. That's a key thing. It's God's free prerogative. No one can say, you have to save everyone. I use the analogy, if you buy a McDonald's uh, uh, value meal for someone that is in need or homeless, but you don't buy it for every needy homeless person in Anderson... Can someone really say, that's terrible that you bought them that? You go, I-, I thought I was doing a good thing. I didn't have to buy for anyone. Yeah, but you didn't buy for everybody. We would think, you're crazy. You have no right. Who did you buy a meal for? Oh, no one. Well, then how are you dare to... See, that's what we do with God. We are not giving everything we have for everyone, but we think God has to when he doesn't. Again, that's chapter 9. Here's the problem. Some people hear Romans 9 about God's sovereignty and his free prerogative in election. Watch this. They hear all that and they hear their conclusion. Well, then we might as well give up on people's salvation. It's the old what will be will be. And those he's going to save, God will do it somehow. I guess somehow he's going to do it. Romans chapter 10 balances all of that out without retreating from chapter 9. It is not a retreat from chapter 9. Can I give you a word? It's going to be a key theme today. More so in the weeks to come. You say, yes, somehow, some way, God's going to do. I'm going to tell you, and it's going to become more evident. It's not our focus today. We're going to just flirt with it today. It's called evangelism. Evangelism is undeniably part of God's plan. 
Romans chapter 9 is obviously God's plan. Romans chapter 10 is going to tell us mankind is responsible. You are responsible for your sin. You're responsible to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We who have done that are responsible to tell other people about Jesus. We cannot sit back and say, well, if all that's true in chapter 9, then I guess we do nothing. Wrong conclusion. You need to keep reading to chapter 10. Now, if I could preach all of it at one time, we'd have one big, long, all-day seminar, and we'd hit it all at once. But what we're having to do is a few verses at a time. And so we're doing the best we can. So that's why I want to keep us putting it together. Do you know what evangelism is? Evangelism is where we tell people about Jesus, and we call them. Watch this. We can't have faith for them. We can't make them believe, but we tell them and we keep calling and pleading. And if sometimes someone comes to the conclusion, I'm all in on chapter 9. I really believe in predestination and election and foreknowledge. I believe all of that. Do you tell anybody about Jesus? If your conclusion is, no, there's no reason. You're off point from what Paul concludes. Totally. And I know a lot of people who reach that point. Would you look with me at chapter 9 as we get a running start to chapter 10. Today's text will be chapter 10 verses 1 through 3 really. We'll get a little bit into verse 4. Chapter 9 verse 30 is amazing to me. Here we go. Paul makes a conclusion off of chapter 9. Here's what he says. What shall we say then? Here's God's word. And I've got to tell you this sounds so strange but it's absolutely what's happened. I, I, I would never have thought of it this way. So clear. What shall we say then to all this in essence what Paul says? Here's the conclusion. That Gentiles, it's us, who did not pursue righteousness, that's us. We're just living life. He says, Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. There is a righteousness that's given to us. All we do is believe. Paul says, they're not, here's a group of people, they're not, most people in the world, they're not even looking for righteousness. They end up having a God encounter. All they believe are the words and promises of God, put their faith in Jesus. They end up getting Jesus' righteousness just given to them. But verse 30 is very sad, 31 sad. What should we say then? On the other hand, verse 31, but that Israel, who pursued, so we didn't pursue, we end up getting it by faith, Israel, who pursued a law, that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. So they're working for it. They end up not getting it. We're not even in the market for it. We end up getting it. Why has this happened to them? Verse 32, why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. That's the big problem. I can't go into this unique wording. It would take too long, but... Paul's conclusion is the Jews have stumbled over the stumbling stone. I'll tell you the stumbling stone is a person. It's Jesus. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion, the temple mount area in Jerusalem. I am laying in Zion, a stone of stumbling. That person is Jesus. And a rock of offense. He's very offensive to Jewish people. The vast majority of Jews find Jesus of Nazareth very offensive because he claimed to be their Messiah. And Paul says, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Now, if you would, look with me in verse chapter 10. Verse number 1. Before I read verse 1, let me say real quickly. Uh, After the service today, I'm going to be slipping out very, very quickly. Uh, We have, uh, I don't know why I'm doing this now, but anyway. We have a flight out of Greenville, uh, Spartanburg Airport, Deanna and I, and we're heading to balmy Minneapolis, Minnesota, uh, where today's high will, I think, uh, tomorrow's high will be below zero. That'll be the high. Uh, we're going to a pastor's conference, and so I'm going to slip out real quickly. And so I'm kind of a little nervous about airlines, not because of, uh, you know, proposed snow that's up there. I just know how everybody's sick. You know, you heard Brandon allude to that. And so I, I'm already popping the Zycam already just to kind of ward off everybody else's germs that's around me. Hopefully I get there, uh, you know, well and get back well. Uh, and so it kind of made me feel a little dry this morning. So I'm going to be hitting the water a little bit. So you just forgive me in that. All that long exp- explanation. Two things. That's why I'm in the water. Three, two. That's why I'm getting out real quick. I'm not trying to be unfriendly. We've got to leave the house by like 1230, 1245. So, so you're like, oh, yeah, you're going to preach short today. Yeah, I don't count on that. I'm just saying. <laughs> i got to leave early. i got to leave early. i got to skip out real fast. All right? Now, would you look with me at our text? Here we go. Brothers, 
you have a study Bible, you notice it says brothers and sisters is the idea. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, Israel, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So guys, I want to tell you, evangelism's coming. You're like, I didn't like chapter 9, all the ramifications. I believe we, this and this. Great, it's coming. Evangelism's coming. Not today. Today, here's what I want you to see. There's ten ways we could have looked at today's text. I feel like the Lord wants us to do this. You ready? We need to see what precedes evangelism. Before we just go out and start telling people about Jesus, what precedes evangelism? I think the text shows us at least three things precede evangelism. Number one... A burden must precede evangelism. Isn't that simple? That's so simple. Look at verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Brothers, my heart's desire for them is that they may be saved. Paul is saying, this is my heart's desire. I want to ask you this morning, what is your true heart's desire? If God were to tell you, hey, the next thing you ask, I guarantee you, it will happen. Unless it's sinful, whatever you ask me to do, the next thing, I promise I will do it, what is on your heart? What is, it, what is your heart's greatest desire? Paul's varied. Listen, Paul's varied. Paul wrote a letter to a, a group of house churches in the city of Ephesus. You know what his prayer was for them? Guys, my heart's desire, my prayer for you is that you will see all the spiritual things that are, at, that are in your access, that are available to you. And then I want you to actually take advantage of those things and put them into your life so that you have power and wisdom. That's my prayer for you. To the Colossians, he'd say, Lord, my heart's desire and prayer for them is that they will like know your will, not just like head knowledge. They would have the head knowledge and it would become actually in their life. Lord, that's what I want for them. So they'll be pleasing to you. He would tell the Philippians, my desires for you is that that love you already have, that it will grow more and more and you'll grow in your knowledge of God. And then you'll end up choosing and evaluating, what is, nah, that's not good and that's okay and those are good things, but those are the excellent things. And I want you to spend your time doing the excellent things. Paul says, wherever you at, my heart's desire may vary among people, but for Israel it is real simple, one thing. Right, Paul, you want... You want God to overthrow Rome and move Israel to the front. Maybe give Israel a great king. Paul said, I would not waste my request on Rome being overthrown. No. What would you want? One main thing. For that group, God, will you save them? Consumes them. Will you save Israel. Paul, Paul, time out. This makes no sense. You just told us at the end of chapter 9. You yourself said, many, most of them, only a remnant will be saved. Most will not be saved. But he's praying, God, please. And he knows at the end time, there's going to be a larger remnant and they really are going to turn to the Lord. He doesn't know when that's going to happen, so he's praying for his brothers and sisters of the nation of Israel. Look back at chapter 9. We can't re-preach it. I want to read it, though. Look at chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. Romans 9, verse 1. Talking about a burden has to precede evangelism. We don't just launch out. Hey, let's set up a time and let's go. No, a burden precedes it. Verse 1, Paul says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm speaking the truth. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience, I'm not saying this flippantly, my conscience bears me witness. Here's the kicker. In the Holy Ghost, the Holy Ghost is my witness. He knows I'm, I'm not saying this flippantly. I've really thought about it and I'm not lying. Paul, what are you, man, you sound a little stressed out about what you're about to say. Verse 2. That I have 
great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. You say, this sounds like a miserable man. No, Paul had love, joy, peace. He had all of that. But constantly going on inside of him was an unceasing anguish of soul and a great heaviness and a sorrow for what? Verse 3. For I could wish... Notice he's not saying this is not possible. Paul just said in chapter 8, he can never lose his salvation. This is not possible. But he's saying if it were possible, I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ. You say, Paul, everybody that's cut off from Christ, they go to hell. He says, I would choose to be accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Not on the screen, but verse 4 says they are the Israelites. That is astounding to me. Paul says, I would go to hell. You talk about a burden? Paul says, sign me up. Literally, God, I know there's no going back. If you offered it, I would go to hell. If my people, the nation of Israel, would go to, go to heaven for eternity, I will make that, that change. I will do it right now, God. I don't even need to think about it. In, Paul, you really need to think. No, I don't need to think. I've already thought about it. I will do it. Knowing that he can't, but he really meant it. Yeah, easy to make a promise you know that can't happen. That's why he called in Christ as his witness and the Holy Spirit as his witness. This is powerful. You want to know what else? This is on a lesser level, but I'm going to tell you why else. This is astounding to me. These are his main enemies. Look at the life of Paul. He's going around literally trying to tell people how to escape hell and how to go to heaven in Christ. And you know what? Every step of his way, he's being hounded and harassed and persecuted by who? The main group was the nation of Israel. He knows they're after him. Paul, he could literally lift up his shirt. And you, you know what you'd see? 195 lashes over five different beatings. 39 each time. My people beat me. And Paul's attitude is, I, honestly, I've come to a conclusion from studying Acts and Romans and 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I really believe Paul's attitude was this. You guys beat me if I get to preach though, right? I'll make a deal. Well, if you preach, we're going to beat you. Deal. Let me tell you, your Messiah has already come. His name is Jesus. He came the first time to die on the cross to pay for your sins. He's going to come again as your king. You're looking for the king, but what you really need first is a savior. Beat him. All right. String me up. 39 lashes. They harassed him all along the way. Paul's attitude toward them, but I love them. Here's why. I was just as blind. I was just as cruel. You guys think you're cruel to me? That's nothing. I did far worse to the church than you're doing to me. Before on this road to Damascus, minding my own business, going to persecute Christians, just like you hate Christians, he tells the Jews, Jesus himself showed up to me, knocked me down, made me blind, revealed himself to me, I got saved. And now I went from being the church's biggest enemy to now I'm the church's biggest promoter. I, I, I love you because I am you. I know where you're at. We're going to point two, but i got to ask you, how is your burden? Chapter 9 is pretty strong. I'd go to hell for my people, Paul says. Christian, mature Christian, seasoned Christian question. Scale of 1 to 10. Two questions. Scale of 1 to 10, how's your burden? 10 is Romans 9, verses 1 through 3. 1 is, Jeff, honestly, I really don't think about souls until I hear about it at church. Where are you at? Second question is this, has your burden for souls ever been greater than it is this morning? Ouch, ouch. Number two, Romans chapter 10 verse number one also reveals this, prayer must precede evangelism. Prayer must precede evangelism. A burden must precede evangelism. We're never going to tell people about Christ unless we have a burden. A preacher can't, like, we're going to set up a day and, a, and an area and a method that'll never work. Only when God gives us a burden, only when we actually put ourselves in their shoes and, and think forward are we going to have a burden for people. But secondly, and I'm going to actually spend longer on this point, Prayer must precede evangelism. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Guys, I'm going to tell you again, this is stunning to me. Paul, hold on, everything you just wrote in chapter 9 about the predestination of God and about the election of God and about the sovereignty. Though you just, I, think, I don't know that he used the word sovereignty, but it is just oozing and, and just dripping from every part of Romans chapter. All of that... And you're telling me the conclusion you come to is that leads you to pray. That doesn't make sense. 
Guys, I'm going to tell you straight up. There are people who study Romans 9. They don't like it, and so they skip it. And others look at it, and they know what it says, and it's like they don't like it. And here's what they think. It's very logical, very logical. I admit, it is logical. Here's their conclusion. If I believe that, then we don't even need to pray. If I believe that, then we don't even need to plead with anyone. And I'm going to tell you why they, th- they come to that conclusion. Because they find people, here, watch out, is this convicting? They find people who believe Romans 9 and they watch their life and they don't pray for souls and they don't tell people about Jesus and they are very unevangelistic. I don't want Grace for you to be that kind of church. I don't want Jeff to be that kind of preacher. You say, Jeff, you're like really singing a whole different tune than you did in Romans chapter 9. No, we're not retreating from that. We're just saying here's the other side of the coin. It's the same coin. It all goes together. What I'm going to tell you, I've not intentionally used it. I shouldn't even have said that. So I'm not going to complete it. Now you're thinking, go ahead and say it. No, I'm not going to say it. But here's my point. Paul knew more about foreknowledge, election, predestination, and sovereignty than any mere human ever. Did Augustine know a lot? Yes. Did John Owen know a lot? Yes. Did John Calvin know a lot? Yes. Did Jonathan Edwards know a lot? Yes. Does John Piper know a lot? Yes. None of them altogether know as much about it as Paul. They get their ideas from Paul. And you know what Paul says? All of those things, you know what they make me do? They make me pray. God, please, would you please save my people? And we look at that and go, that is not the conclusion I would reach. Please pay attention to verse 1. Please don't blow over Paul's emphasis and example of prayer. Last week we had a little handout about a potential Bible reading that gets us through the New Testament. So I'm following that. You know what I'm doing last week? I'm reading Luke chapter 10 on Friday. I get to verse number 2. You know what it says? It's not a direct quote. And it hit me. Luke 2 says something like this. Jesus sends out the 70 or the 72 and they come back. And here's what Jesus says. Get this. Please hear this. The harvest is plentiful. Let that sink in. The harvest is plentiful. And if you think it's merely, oh yes, lots of unsaved people. I think the harvest is not just the potential of unsaved people. I believe it's the ones who will actually come to Christ. The key is this. Is God going to save? It's plentiful. He's going to save plentiful people. Here's the problem though. The laborers are few. Now here's one thing. I'm going to just tell you. Here's a little pet peeve of mine. So you have someone that gets really upset with God about chapter 9, or they get upset with anyone who believes chapter 9 and the ramifications of it, but if they check their heart, here's what I want to ask them. Who's the last five people you've told about Jesus? Who have you told about Jesus this week? Well, nobody. Well, apparently you, by your life, believe chapter 9, because you're not nearly as evangelistic as you think. And so before you get angry at God for what He's not doing, why don't we do what we should be doing? prayer there are several sentences today I wish I could say five times time will not allow me this is one the true success of ministry depends on God's power I'm going to say it twice you got to hear this say Jeff what's your philosophy the true success of ministry depends on on God's power. It does not depend on how good our coffee is or how tasty our snacks or breakfast things are or how good our vocals are or how well our instrumentalists play or how friendly our people are or how well put together our lessons are or how accurate and put together our sermons are or how energetically they're delivered. None of those things lead to true success in ministry apart from the power of God. And the power of God, I find, is tied to prayer. Christian is there a Christian in the house this morning you say Jeff man this is convicting to me I've been much more about prayer a year ago than I am right now I've just been really distracted with some things and I'm really off on it I don't think we can preach on prayer enough those of you been with us on Wednesday you gotta forgive me you say Jeff you just did this at the end of the summer and you did this through the fall Please tell me you're not about to try to wrap up three and a half months worth of preaching in one point this morning. Yes, I am. I'm going to. Because as I was doing that on Wednesday night, I kept thinking, God, our Sunday morning group needs to be challenged about prayer. And it was never in the text, really. And I can't skip it this morning. You had two handouts. Would you look at the other handout this morning? It has five blanks on it. Get your, get your pen ready. 
Here's what I honestly hope. I, I thought last night or this morning, Jeff, what's the goal of the message? If this happens, this would be awesome. If Graceview becomes a church with a burden and Graceview becomes a, a praying people, man, that'd be awesome. I want to be known as a praying church. I want to be a praying pastor. Desperately praying. What is prayer? Prayer in its simplest form is just talking to God. Don't make it more than that. I like to add a couple more words. I like to say it like this. Prayer is simply talking to God as a real person because he's a real person. So it's not just talking out there to nothing. It's talking to God. I'm going to make a statement that I, I fully believe in. Please listen. I believe that any Christian armed with a few fundamentals, any Christian armed with a few fundamentals can have a very effective prayer life. You. I'm talking to Christians. If you don't have a relationship with Christ, this does not apply to you. You can't have an effective prayer life. But any Christian, you say, but the key is the fundamentals. We're not going over anything fancy the next few minutes. That handout right there is a little differently arranged version, but it's the same one that I have in this Bible right here. I have one in the Bible that I use at home for my devotions. Here's what I hope you will do. I hope you will fill in these five words. I hope you will fill in the the handout that you have today. I know you can't save them all, but if you would staple those and put them where you have your devotional time with God and just use them as a reference, here's why. You're better than me, but here's what I find. I have to go to them often. Y'all ever, is, this, is, this, is this ever ever you? You're sitting there, you're ready, you're in same time, same place, everything's the same around you. Only problem is, I just don't feel like I'm, nothing's happening here. I'm just not getting through today. I'm just not talking to God. When that happens to me, I literally bring out my verses to assist in prayer because faith comes from truth and it needs to be on truth and I just start rehearsing these things till I get my heart ready, now I'm ready to pray. You say, Jeff, that sounds like that could take a while. Every now and then it does. You have five things on the second handout. There's not room for all nine. But on the other one, I hope you will fill out simultaneously nine fundamentals. I'm going to tell you, if any Christian, and again, don't make them fancier. They're just simple, but they have to be there. If you will do this, you will have massive results in your prayer life. Number one, effective prayer must have faith. We've got to start there. Effective prayer must have faith. Look at your handout. These will not be on the screen. They're only on the handout. So if, someone, if you don't have one, someone near you has one, you might want to share. Look at Hebrews eleven six. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. Here it comes. For whoever would draw near to God. That sounds like prayer. Sounds like a relationship. Whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Two things there. You, the God of the Bible, you do exist and you do reward. I am not wasting my time. James 1, 5 James 1, verses 5 through 8. Not a week goes by that I do not claim these and pull them up. Like, God, here's what you said. James 1, 5 through 8. If any of you lacks wisdom, I believe this one even spills over to the unsaved person because of the words any and all. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask, of, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. Great, we could stop there, but watch verse 6. But let him ask in faith. With no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. You have to have faith. Can't go over all of these, but Matthew 21, look what it says. The day before, literally, Jesus and his disciples, just days before his crucifixion, are walking through the city of Jerusalem. There's a fig tree over there, and it's not producing fruit. And so Jesus pronounces a verbal curse on it. They come back the next day, and the disciples are amazed. Lord, look at the tree. It's withered. Your curse really worked. Look what he says in verse 21. Jesus answered them, truly, I say to you. We're talking about how you have to have faith in prayer. Truly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, you ever needed a mountain moved out of your life? If you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive. If you have faith, what kind of faith? What kind of God are we talking to? Ephesians 3. I said I wouldn't read them all. I'm going to hit this one. Ephesians 3. Now to him 
who is able, I love to rehearse this because it kind of bolsters my faith, to him who is able to do far more abundantly, not abundantly, not more, far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. You see Hebrews 4 talks about Christ is our high priest. Number two, effective prayer is in Jesus' name. You cannot skip this. Say, Jeff, do I have to actually say the words in Jesus' name? This little pet peeve. Don't just tag in Jesus' name on the end of your prayers like a stamp that's going to ensure that it gets to the destination. Prayer in Jesus' name is an attitude. Watch what Jesus himself says. Literally the night that he's going to be betrayed. The night, the next day he's hanging on a cross at 9 a.m. Chapter, John chapter 16, verse 23. Watch it. In that day, he's talking about after I'm gone. In that day, you will ask me, ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Flip over to the back. I'm skipping verse 25. Go to verse 26. In that day, you will ask in my name. And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. This is not what happens. Jesus, will you go ask the Father if he will do this and that? Okay, hold on. I'll be back in a minute. Father, they want to know. Okay, He says no. Okay. Would you ask him if he would do it? Father, they want to know. That is not what happens. Verse 26 again, in that day you will ask in my name and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. Prayer in Jesus' name. You say, Jeff, what does that even mean? It's real simple. You ready? God, I believe you are, you the God of the Bible, exist. You're a rewarder of those that diligently seek you. And God, I have no business talking to you, but Jesus gave me his righteousness. And you've called me, and he's my high priest. He's paid for all my sins. You've invited me, so Lord, based on that, I'm going to come confidently according to Hebrews. And I have an audience with you because of Christ. Do it every time. Number three, effective prayer begins with confession. You don't just go with a bunch of known sin and expect God to answer prayer. Psalm 66, 18, the psalmist says, If I had cherished... That means I know it's there. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Proverbs 28, 13. Whoever conceals his transgression, well, surely God doesn't know about this. Yes, he does. Whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper. But he who confesses, God, I'm admitting it, and forsakes them will obtain mercy. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And James 4 talks about if you come humbly before God and not proud and arrogant. Listen, just come to God. God, I believe you are, you exist. I'm coming on the basis of Christ. And Lord, you're convicting me on this. And yes, I've I've done that or I haven't done that. Or I've been very distracted with this. And Lord, I'm confessing it. But I'm claiming 1 John 1. I don't want your forgiveness. Number four, quickly, effective prayer includes thanksgiving. Philippians chapter four, verse six. Please let this sink in. Take this home, rehearse it. For years to come, use this handout. Paul tells the Philippians, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer, means asking, and supplication. Supplication means I'm lacking, so I'm asking even more desperately. So these I'm asking for, but here I'm lacking. I really need this, God. So here's what he says. In everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known. One quick thought. Being grateful and thankful is not giving thanks. So please don't go to God in prayer and say, I'm grateful. Did you actually verbalize thankfulness? Name things. Number five. Effective prayer must be for God's will. It must be for God's will. You want your prayer to be effective, pray for things according to God's will. James chapter 4, verse 2 and 3. James says to his congregation, he says, is this us? Does this describe you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain. You really want stuff. So you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. We're going to talk about that in a moment. Watch verse 3. Please hear it. 
You ask. So here's a group of people. They don't ask, but here's a group of people. They do ask for things in prayer, but here's what God says. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. It's just selfishly my pleasures and my desires. God, you're my Santa Claus. You're my genie. I rub the lamp. Out you pop. I give you my request. Please make them happen. Other than that, I don't need you for anything. You will not have your prayers answered. Look at 1 John 5. This is an amazing. This is the confidence that we have toward Him. That if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of Him. I hope you will keep that. Those help me. If five people keep that, it is worth it. Now hear the, the one we just hit. Fifth one. I need to touch it for a moment. You ready? Don't nod, don't give any external. Do you know anyone in your life that you care about that you think is not on their way to heaven? Is there a new baby in the family? Is there a little toddler? Is there a parent, anyone with a parent? Like one of my parents I know is not a Christian. Is anybody in here you say, I have a brother or a sister? Anybody in here you like, it's my grandchild, or I have a really good friend, or I have a co-worker? Is there anybody that... It, By now, we should be going, by that list, I've got three or four people. Here's my second question. Are you praying for them to be saved? Third question, why are you praying for them to be saved? Here it comes. You ready? If this is your answer, Jeff, why am I? It's my child. It's my grandchild. It's my mom. It's it's my brother. It's my sister. What do you mean, why am I praying? Hang with me. If this is your answer, I'll tell you why I'm praying. My child, my grandkid. I can't bear the thought of them in hell for even two seconds. Two seconds. Thousand one. Thousand two. I never want them to feel anything like that. God, please save them. Listen to me. God gave you that love. But I want to give you a better reason to ask. You say, there can be no greater motivation. What if you did this? Do it. God, what if you could mean this? God, love them. God, please. It tears me up. God, please save them. I know they're only three weeks old. Lord, please. And let me, just really God, as soon as they're just of a young age, please save them. But Lord, here's my main reason. I love you more than them and I want to see you get the glory from their lives. Let them be a trophy of your grace so that everybody through eternity says God is a gracious God because he saved that person. That's better. Lord, I do love them, but I love you more. You say, Jeff, are we allowed to give? This kind of question was kind of presented in a veiled way. Are we allowed to offer our request to God? I mean, all this is Romans 9. Are we really allowed to offer our request to God? Look at Matthew 26. Should be on the screen. Matthew 26, verse, the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus takes the 12 in the garden. He tells eight of them, actually, it's not the 12, Judas is no longer with them. Eight of them, you guys stay over there. Y'all pray. Peter, James, and John, y'all come on over here. You guys stay right here. I'm going a little further. Verse number 38 happens. Then he said to them, my soul, Jesus says, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Peter, James, and John, my soul. Guys, I feel like I might die right here in the garden. What's going on? My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed. Now he's talking to God saying, my father. Jesus knows what the next few hours holds for him. My father, if it be possible... Let this cup, this cup is a bitter cup. It's the cross, it's the trial, it's the shame, it's the sin that he's going to become. It's the separation from the Father. Verse number 39. My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Translation, my will, God, I don't want to drink this. I don't want to do this. Is there another way? Look at the end. Nevertheless, not as I will. But as you will, verse 42, again for the second time, we're skipping ahead, again for the second time, he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass, unless I drink it, your will be done. I find Jesus in that passage 
gives the best example of voicing our heart's desire. God, this is my heart's desire, but I always yield to your will. Lord, bring my will and your will together. I'm praying for your will. Today's second point is vast, far and away, the longest point. It keeps going. On the other part of your handout, back to the main handout, if you would pick up at number six. Effective prayer must be made. You say, Jeff, this sounds really, really simple. I want to tell you all what's about to happen. By about, I mean it may happen within the next few days for some. It will happen in the next 100 years for all of us. I'm I'm getting ready to tell you what's going to happen. You ready? I believe while I'm preaching... Christians all around the world, some have gone on to be with the Lord while I'm preaching. I don't know who they are. It's happening. Listen, here's what's happening. The moment they see God, this really happens. Their soul and spirit goes to be with the Lord. The body's left here. I'm telling you what's, what's going to happen with us. Here's what's going to happen. We're going to see God, and I think the first thing that's going to happen is some version of, wow, wow. Wow! And I don't know how long it gets, takes to get past. Wow! I don't know how long that takes. I think this comes pretty close after that. If I had known you were that powerful. If I had known you were this gracious. If I had known you were this wise. I'd have prayed so much more. The guy even told us on that Sunday morning, but I forgot about it. It's coming. It's coming. We're going to wish... We'd prayed more and better. Write it down. Sometimes our problem isn't really the unanswered prayer. God's just not answering the prayer. I think more than unanswered prayer often, is this you, our problem is the unprayed prayer. We never even ask for it. James chapter 4. We read it a while ago, but I'm going to back up to verse number 1 this time. James chapter 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain. You really want stuff, he's saying, so you fight and quarrel. Watch this last line of verse 2. You do not have because you do not ask. Grace, if you listen. Christian, listen. James is telling us through the Word of God, sometimes there's things you don't have them because you haven't asked. You say, Jeff, do you honestly believe there are things on the table that God's ready to give us and we just don't have them because we haven't asked for them? I absolutely believe that. They're right there. Is God going to give them to us? When you start asking, God's like, right there they are. I'm not giving it to you until you ask. And I mean beyond chapter 10. Life. You need some wisdom today? James 1.5, claim it by faith. Number seven and quickly. Effective prayer must contain specific requests. Did you see Paul's specific request in Romans 10, 1, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is, here's the word, key word, that they may be saved. Paul, what's your prayer? That they may be saved. I don't have long to hit this, so I want to throw something at you. Ready? Last week, what exactly did you ask God for in your prayer? You say, I prayed 8 to 15 minutes every day last week. Think in your mind, what did you ask for exactly? I'm going to tell you, this is for me. I've got to watch me. Beware of these two phrases. Beware of this. Lord, would you bless so-and-so? What does that mean? Lord, be with, insert missionary, country, church, individual. Lord, please be with. Lord, please bless. I think God would say, how? Say it. Name it. God bless Paul's prayers were specific. I want this for them and this for them and this for them. When you pray specifically, you know your prayers got answered. When you leave it crazy, hazy, lazy prayers, you never know if your prayer got answered or not. Number eight. This is one of the main ones. Effective prayer must be to God. You say, Jeff, that's not one of the main ones. That's so obvious. Romans 10 verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God. To God. Look at Acts chapter 12, verse number 5. It'll be on the screen. Acts 12. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Peter's in prison, but over here's the church using its great equalizer. What is it doing? It's praying to God. I used the next two quotes, the last two points I'm going to borrow. 
almost solely from R.A. Torrey. This quote is a long one, I'm going to warn you, but it is so rich, I wouldn't waste your time. Please hear. R.A. Torrey says, the prayer, so if you're sitting here this morning and say, man, this makes me want to, I, I don't want to be better in my prayer life. Torrey wrote, the prayer that has power is the prayer that is offered unto God. But some will say, is not all prayer offered unto God? No. Very much of so-called prayer, both public and private, is not unto God. Here it comes. In order for a prayer to really be unto God, here it comes, there must be a definite and conscious approach to God when we pray. Here's the main sentence. Here it comes. We must have a definite and vivid realization that God is bending over us listening as we pray. Let me read that line again. We must have a definite and vivid realization that God is bending over us listening as we pray. Christian, hear me right here. Don't say a word until you know God is definitely bending over you. Okay, God, there you are. Don't start. Why? Here's what we do. Tori says, in very much of our prayer, there is really only little thought of God. Does this sound like anybody here? Because this is Jeff Bartlett sometimes. Our mind is taken up with the thought of what we need. I'm consuming what we need. And it's not occupied with the thought of the mighty and loving Father of whom we're seeking it. It gets worse. Oftentimes we're neither occupied with the need nor with the one to whom we're praying. Here's me. Instead, our mind is wandering here and there throughout the world. We're saying things, but our mind's over there and over there. And I just say this sentence, and that sentence had a certain word, had the word grandkids in it, and all of a sudden now I'm thinking about my kids' grandkids' schedule. And I no longer have any view of God. Forgot what I'm really praying for. It's just words. He says, our mind is wandering here and there throughout the world. Hear this. There is no power in that sort of prayer. But when we really come into God's presence, really meet Him face to face in the place of prayer, really meet Him face to face in the place of prayer, really seek the things that we desire from Him, then there is power. And the last one on the second point is effective prayer must be intense. It must be intense. Paul says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer. James chapter 5, it'll be on the screen. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Hear that verse again. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah, well, yeah, Elijah, he had a direct line. Hang on. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. Lord, Don't let it rain as a lesson to Ahab and Jezebel. Lord, just shut the rain off. Look what the New Testament says. He prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Not on the screen is the next verse. Then he prayed again after three and a half years. And heaven gave rain. 63 words in the King James. God, don't let it rain. Three and a half years. Finally, Ahab and Jezebel said, come back. What have you done? You're the one that's done it. You've been away from God. And they end up having this big contest. And then Elijah prays fervently, 63 words, and a deluge comes. That's a man that had power. Second and last quote from Tori, and I'm moving on. Is this convicting? It is to me. R.A. Tori says, quote, The prayer which prevails with God is the prayer into which we put our whole soul stretching out toward God in intense and agonizing desire Much of our modern prayer lacks power because it lacks heart. Is this anyone here? Man, he he nails us. Here's what he said. We rush into God's presence, run through a string of petitions, jump up and go out. And here's the proof. If anyone asks us an hour later what we prayed for, often we cannot remember. Did you pray today? Oh, yeah. I prayed about 15, 20 minutes. What did you pray? I don't really remember any main thing. You had no heart. He says, if we put so little heart into our prayers, we cannot expect God to put much heart into answering them. What precedes evangelism, a burden, prayer? God, 
win, bring them, win them, use me. And then the last point. Knowledge of God and knowledge of man must precede evangelism. Knowledge of God and of man must precede evangelism. Look, if you would, at verse number 2. What goes before going out and telling people about Jesus? We need to know God and we need to know the people that we're going to talk to. By the way, this is a sample audience. Everyone does not fit in Paul's Israel, Israelite group here. But look at verse 2. Three things Paul's going to tell us about the Israelites. He says, number one, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. Paul knows his audience. The Jews were very, very zealous. In fact, Jews honestly thought, here's my, my former pastor used to tell, tell us this. He said, to a Jew, zeal was the main quality to have. It was extreme love for God and the things that God loves, and it's extreme hate for anything that God hates. And anything that's against God, we hate that. And anything that's for God, we love that. And it leads to our actions. Paul says, I can tell you, I'm a witness firsthand. They are extremely zealous and zealous for God. I've got you three things. Write this down. Examples. You know why they crucified Jesus, don't you? They thought he was a blasphemer. And they just didn't think, that guy's a blasphemer. Somebody needs to do something about him. Here's the Jewish attitude. We will do something. And they crucified Jesus thinking they're doing God a favor. Why? Because they're zealous. And when I use the word they, here's what it means. Paul. Paul could say, I was there. I hated him. I'm the main one that saw him be crucified. Another thing is this. They were so zealous that if God's law drew a line, they drew a buffer line. Watch. God's law says this. Here's the line. You're out there. Don't cross the line. They're so zealous. The Jew says, there's God's line. Now, here's what we need to do. Here's the other line. Don't come over this line. Because if you don't come over this line, then you're surely not coming. They're so zealous. But isn't that like adding laws and commands that God didn't? Isn't that going to make life even tougher? Who cares? It's for God. Right? And they think they're doing everybody a favor, keeping them safe. Here's the third thing. Their adherence, this is just a sample, their adherence to the Sabbath and dietary laws were tedious. Very impressive. Read about one priest between the Old and New Testament. One of the Greek rulers that were in charge of Israel at that time brought him in and said, you need to eat pork. He wouldn't do it. They demanded, bring out the pork. You will eat this or you will be tortured. He wouldn't do it. They took him out and tortured him and tortured him and tortured him. His, his oppressors and, and tormentors felt sorry for him. They said, listen, let us get meat that is not really pork. Let us get non-pork, but we will say it is. Then you can eat it and just say that you ate it. He says, I will not do it. And they killed him. These Jews are zealous, man. Why? For God. Number two, Paul says they're ignorant. He's not name-calling, he's just being truthful. Look at verse 2. I bear them witness, they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. That phrase, not according to knowledge, there does not mean they lacked knowledge at all. It means they did not have full knowledge. Specifically, verse 3a says, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God. I'm going to invite you to do this. Would you look at verse 3 and notice A, B, C. Would you do that very quickly? Look at three. Look at its three parts. Four, being ignorant of the righteousness of God. And B, seeking to establish their own. And C, they did not submit to God's righteousness. A, they have no clue how holy God is. B, they're going around trying to work up and promote and establish their own righteousness to put before God. C, they don't subject and submit to God's righteousness. I want to propose to you that one of the key words in verse number 3 is the word and because I believe they're happening at the same time. A and B are both happening at the same time. I believe A leads to B and B leads to A and you're like, Jeff, you just lost me. Watch. They don't know how holy God is because they're so busy trying to promote their own righteousness. And because they're so busy promoting their own righteousness, they continue to be blind about just how holy God is. And the bad thing about all of that is they end up not submitting to Christ's righteousness. I wrote a sentence this morning. It's an important one. Ignorant zeal can be deadly. Ignorant zeal 
can be deadly, especially in religion. We call it terrorism around the world, but it gets worse when you're trusting your religion. I sang a song a while ago, I'm laying down on my religion, I'm trusting the simple gospel. So Jeff, how does a person get saved? Look at Isaiah chapter 64, verse number 6. It's on the screen. They may not know this exact verse, but I don't believe a person can come to Christ until they obtain this attitude. The Bible says, We have all become like one who's unclean. We've all become like one who's unclean. And all our righteous deeds, oh yeah, all the bad things. No, all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. A polluted garment, there could be a wrapping on an awful gangrenous sore. Could be that, or it could be something that I'm not going to talk about in mixed company this morning uh, that has to do with ladies. Verse 4. We've all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Look, God. Here's me and my Bible reading and my church giving and my attendance, and I'm stopping using those bad words. You're impressed, right? And... Isaiah says, that's our best, it's filthy rags. God's not impressed. Write it down. The Jews' ignorance of God's holiness led them to foolishly promote their supposed righteousness. Have no clue how holy God is, and so they're constantly... Hey, I'll tell you one thing. Some of you know this. If Leonardo da Vinci or Michelangelo lived today, and they lived in Anderson, and I ran across them, I'll promise you one thing. I would not get my little notebook, which I don't even have one. I would not get my little notebook and go, you're Da Vinci? Awesome. Hey, you want my signature? No, not really. I want to show you some things that I've drawn. Look right here. Look right here. If you've ever been in one of my classes at the Christian school, would you raise your hand? Yeah, see? They've seen my handwriting. My handwriting is readable, but it's not good. It's ugly. We're going to have like a certificate of something coming up. I need to sign. I told Renee, I'm like, oh, boy, I hate to mess it up with my signature. I would be embarrassed for Da Vinci or Michelangelo to look at my art. Why? Because they have skill. I have none. You know why the Jews are promoting themselves to God? They have no clue how holy He is. Then the last thing we notice about the Jews is they were stubborn. They're stubborn. Verse verse 3. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God. Don't know how holy he is. No clue. He's so much holier. And seeking, those go together, and seeking to establish their own. Here's what it led to. Here's the worst part. They did not submit to God's righteousness. I dare say the Jew would tell us this morning, this guy's lying to you. We do submit to God's righteousness. Why do you think we're doing all of this? That's us submitting to God's righteousness. Here's Paul's answer. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Let me read it. I go faster, but please listen. The Jews may have thought they were submitting to God's righteousness by attempting to keep God's law, but they did not submit to Christ as their righteousness. And the end of the law, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. Again, I'm referring to my former pastor. Here's what he used to tell us. When you get to the end zone in football, you can keep running, but there's no reason to. Jesus is the end of the law. There's no reason to keep, I'm trying to earn my way to heaven. No, if you look at Jesus, he kept the law. He gives us his righteousness. We are now righteous enough to go to heaven if he gives us his righteousness. All we do is believe. It's the end of our efforts. There's no reason to keep going. Your last note. MacArthur says, Because men think God is less holy than he is, and that they are more holy than they are, they believe they can achieve acceptance with him. That sums it up. Why are y'all doing all of that? To earn our way to heaven. Why? Because men think God is less holy than he is and that they are more holy than they are. They believe they can achieve acceptance with God. If you're here this morning, I'm going to ask God to talk to somebody this morning. Hang with me. Please listen. If someone is in this room right now, here's you. Listen. You know... You have never put your faith and trust in Christ. If that is you, 
If you know you, you know. Oh, I know I've never put my faith and trust in Christ. If you do not see yourself hanging perilously by a thread over the eternal torments of hell. Let me say it again. You say, oh, I know I've not trusted Christ. Sitting here right now, I have never trusted Christ. If you don't see yourself hanging by a thread perilously over the eternal torments of hell, you are seriously deceived. You're gravely deceived. And so I'm going to ask you, how are you planning on getting to heaven? What's your plan? Is your plan, I'm going to be good enough Here's what I have found with people, and this may be somebody here today. Listen. People will never stop trying to be good enough until two things happen. Number one, they see how high the bar is of God's righteousness. When you see how holy and righteous God is and the demand that he expects, all you got to do, all I'll ask you, go to Exodus chapter 20, go through the Ten Commandments very slowly, think, have you ever done any of those things, even in your heart? And as you look through that and go, broke that one, broke that one, I'm, I'm over 10. We're all over 10. The only way we will ever put our faith and trust in Christ is when we see how high the bar of righteousness that God demands is. But here's the other part. When you see how sufficient is the righteousness that Jesus provides, you'll stop trying to be good enough and you'll say, I can never do that. You've already done it. You're giving it away for free. I mean, right now, before I finish the sentence, all you have to do is put right now your faith in Jesus. I don't even know the full verses, but Jesus... Your word, it's all in it. It's enough. And I receive your righteousness. If you will do that and stop trying to earn your way to heaven, you get to go to heaven. Would you bow your heads this morning? Heads bowed just for a moment. I have to ask everyone, everyone in here, are you right now, right now, Be honest with yourself. Are you right now trusting in Christ alone? Alone. When I ask you this question, why do you think you're going to heaven? And I mean it this way. What are you trusting? Don't just say because I'm ready. What are you trusting? What makes you ready? Are you right now trusting Christ only? If anything else, if you say, well, I'm trusting Christ and this, you're not ready. Well, I hope most of the people, I, I wish everyone here this morning could say, truthfully, I am only trusting Christ, and I'm trusting Him fully, and I'm going to heaven because of that. I've received His righteousness. But if you cannot say that, I have to ask you this. Are you really still foolishly? You've heard what the Bible says. Are you being like the Jews that Paul was referring to? Are you very foolishly trying to establish your own pitiful righteousness are you really trying to establish do you really think God's going to be impressed let me let you in on something please I say this with a burden God was not impressed with the Jews and they're much more zealous than you are humanly speaking they would be much holier going further down the road of morality and religion than you ever have I'll promise you God's not impressed with them do you think he's going to be impressed with you it will not work But maybe worst of all, is this anyone here this morning? You're not trusting Christ because you are stubbornly like the Jews, stubbornly refusing to receive what God has clearly shown. God says, I love the world so much, I gave my son, and whoever believes in him will not perish, they will have everlasting life. That is so clear. You say, I didn't know that before walking in here. Well, now you do. So is anyone going to walk out of here this morning and just stubbornly, I am just not going to submit to that? You will miss eternal life. You will experience eternal death, but it doesn't have to be that way. As plain as I can say to you this morning, here it is. You can never be good enough to earn God's salvation. You can never do it. He is more holy than you think He is. You are more sinful than you think you are. I am more sinful than I think I am. That's why He gave us His Son. So I'm asking this morning, I'm asking you, I'm not just informing, hey, if you would believe in Christ, you get to go to heaven. I'm not just informing, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. I'm asking you this morning, right there as you sit, 
Don't wait on me to lead you in a prayer. I'm not going to do it today. Right there. Ask God. Lord, please. Just ask Him to save you. Admit to Him you're a sinner. But tell Him you believe His promises. Stop stubbornly refusing.